I was, I taught, help teach, should help teach, confirmation last Wednesday. If you don't know what that means, that's a class in the Methodist church where our 6th grader, 12-year-olds get walked through the basics of the faith, what it means to be a part of a spiritual community. They get, honestly, have an opportunity to respond to the gospel, be baptized if they've never been baptized. It's the basics class for 6th graders. And this last Wednesday was the last, I think the last one that we had to teach because they're getting confirmed up the street this morning. So hopefully it was last week. Anyway, we, were, I walked, we taught them hardcore basics about reading the Bible, understanding the Bible, and made prayer really simple for them too. They had, they had learned about Bible and prayer, but we gave them really step A, B, and C of a brand new journey of faith. And I remember walking away from that going, man... I wish that when I actually got sincere about my faith, somebody had given me that coaching sheet, that crypt sheet. Like, here's how you read your Bible and understand what you're reading. Here are some things to ask yourself as you open a passage of Scripture. That would have been helpful. And maybe you may be asking yourself, man, somebody should have done that for me too. It would be nice to know that when I open the Scripture, if I ask myself two or, these two or three questions, it will help me glean meaning from what I just read. Good luck with Leviticus, right? But, I mean, when we first read Scripture, we go... What was that about? What does that have to do with B? Especially if it's thousands of years ago that it happened. And I just remember thinking, man, I really need it. In fact, I think the reality is most of us wish that the faith was, here's the template. Here's how you are as a Christian. Do A, do B, do C. <laughs> right? It would be nice. Like, tomorrow when I live my faith as a Christian, this is what I'm supposed to do. Unfortunately, being a disciple of Jesus and following Jesus is much more art than science. We, tend to we would love for somebody to boil it down into a script or into a structure, into a scientific method of how to be more Christian, how to, more, how to love God more, how to love people more, all that stuff. Here's what you do. And you know you're doing it. You can measure it. I'm, more, I'm 10 degrees more spiritual than I was last week. If it was that precise, my job would be a lot easier. Let's get out your score sheet and see how you did. You know? <laughs> Oh, you were a little backslidden in this area this week. You gained some more points with Jesus if you did this. It doesn't work that way. That doesn't mean that the Scripture doesn't give us some very clear specifics, because I believe it does. In fact, we're going to start digging into some of those things. But the way that we lean into them is much more art than science. It's less precise. It's not as specific. If you do this, and then this, and then this, I mean, it's kind of obvious on Sunday morning what you're supposed to do, right? If you're looking for a script, what should you do to follow Jesus on Sunday? Go to church <laughs> and then do whatever they tell you to do in service, right? I mean, that script is there for you. But Monday through Saturday, it gets a little more confusing. How am I a good follower of Jesus as a dad? How am I a good follower of Jesus as a college student? How am I a good follower of Jesus as an accountant or CPA or engineer or construction worker like what is Monday through Saturday supposed to look like? And so I think what happens is when we have these prescriptions from Scripture, and we're going to look at a few of them over the next few weeks that are rhythms and responsibilities of people who follow Jesus, applying them exactly is very difficult. This first one might, that we go through today might be one of the most difficult because what we're not, look, we're not looking for is a list or a checklist. What we really are doing is we're choosing a medium of expression, to use the art metaphor and carry it. You'll notice we've got some art stuff. This is going to grow over the weeks, just so you know. May even do something with it together. Just a little heads up. You got any artists in here? They're going to love this. No? This will be a good experiment. 
Art is like, I'm going to paint something. What? I don't know. And you got a little template over there, and it doesn't look exactly like what it does when you start to paint it, <laughs> right? Anybody ever try to draw people, and it just looks weird? Can you relate? Like the ears are Mickey Mouse size, and it's just it's out of proportion, and it doesn't look like what you tried to copy or whatever. It's not precise. And depending on how talented you are, it's just, whoa, what is that? You know, I don't even, that's an apple? Okay. You know, like, it's, <laughs> but what we're looking for is a choice of medium. It's not a list. It is your spiritual instrument or your spiritual palette or your spiritual approach to life that looks a little different in how it's expressed from artist to artist. Because in reality, what we're trying to do is worship God with our life. And the way we express that worship really depends on our mix, on our rhythm, on our talents. And if you're artistic at all, if you're a writer at all, if you're a painter at all, you know you can't just go, okay, I'm going to paint a masterpiece tomorrow. If you could, you would, right? I'm going to write a, no I'm going to write a novel next, by next week. It doesn't work that way, right? Artistic expression doesn't work that way. Even people who are good at that stuff are like, I'm just not feeling it. <laughs> when I write a sermon, there are some days where I'm writing the sermon and I go, oh, Jesus, <laughs> you know, like, and walk away because it's just not cooking, you know. This is not happening. I don't know. This is not coming together. I have no idea what I'm going to say on Sunday. We'll talk about Jesus. You know, like, I don't know. You can't just make yourself come up with creative stuff. And when you have this, I know I'm supposed to live this way, but I'm doing this Monday through Saturday, how do I integrate those two things? How do I work a rhythm of life worship into what I do Monday through Saturday? And that's what we're going to, the next few Sundays, in fact, here's a huge spoiler alert, right? We're going to spend about three weeks breaking down the rhythm from up here. I'll teach them to you. And then we're going to spend about three weeks discussing them here. If this is your first Sunday at Connection, we do things different sometimes, Right? And so sometimes I'll teach like this. Sometimes we'll sit around and pray. Sometimes we'll sit around and have a conversation. Well, we're going to take the basic skills, the basic rhythms, and I'm going to teach them. And then three weeks from now, we're going to have conversation back and forth about how they fit your world. Because I can't stand up here and prescribe, here's how you follow Jesus on Monday. Because your world is different from my world. I mean, I'm a pastor. They pay me to figure out how to <laughs> worship Jesus. Monday, what are, you, what are you doing? I'm studying my Bible. That's my job. It's a little easier to work it into your life when they pay you to do that, right? When they pay you to pray, <laughs> you ever think about that? When I was a youth pastor, you go on youth trips, what are you doing? I'm going to Disney World. Cool. Yeah, really cool that they pay me to do this. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's kind of how it works. You know, you do college ministry, it's like exam slam. Yeah, I get to hang out and serve food to college kids, and this is my job. You know? It's a cool gig if you can get it. I'm just saying but our life and how we integrate those two things is really, really important. So that's all a setup of like six weeks worth of stuff, okay? And we'll talk about it more in the coming weeks. And if the discussion idea freaks you out, it's not compulsory. We're just going to have a conversation. I'm going to ask you about applying some of these rhythms to your life and get some feedback. And you can ask questions like, I was trying to be loving to my neighbor, but, you know, you know. and we'll talk about it back and forth. It'll be cool because I, I like to have spiritual conversations. People who know me knows that means the sermon might be really long, but it'll go by fast because you're talking too. How's that for a setup? Okay, now, today we're going to dig into the first rhythm, and I would call, I'm just going to say, say it straightforward. 
Love your neighbor. Now, if it was that easy, we'd all be doing it. We'd all be experts at it. So let's look at Luke 10, chapter, 25, chapter 10, verse 25. A story, if you've been to church ever in your life, you may have heard, and we'll talk about it. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the teacher asked, or he asked, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him and passed by him on the other side, but when a Samaritan while traveling, came, to, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Modern medicine for you today. Then he put, on his, his own, put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay whatever more you spend." Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. All right, a little setup. We got a teacher. A teacher comes to Jesus. And when you read teacher in that translation, this is what they called a scribe. All right. This was the guy who got paid to study the Old Testament in the temple, in the Jewish temple. All right. So he was an expert in the law. When you see an expert in the law, that you could say Old Testament, because that's what the Jews would follow. They would look at God's law and they'd have experts on interpretation. Those experts on interpretation were called rabbis, which Jesus was one. Right. So when a teacher, scribe, walks up to a Pharisee and says, what must I do to have eternal life? He's not lost. He, he's an expert on the Old Testament. What he means is, what denomination are you? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of a modern way of looking at it. He's asking Jesus, what is his particular slant on the law? There's another story in the Gospels where this, another scribe or another religious leader asked Jesus a similar question. And he says, what's the greatest commandment? It's a similar deal. Because what they're trying to get to the bottom of and testing Jesus' knowledge of the Scriptures is each rabbi placed their own special emphasis or interpretation on the Torah, the Old Testament. Which law was most important? Which commandment was most important? How do you read this? Do you dunk or sprinkle? You see the modern equivalent, right? If you read the Bible and it says, keep the Sabbath holy, what does that mean for you? Football on Sunday afternoon? You know, like, how do you interpret those laws? And that's what he's asking Jesus. And Jesus does the good rabbi thing and asks him an answer, a question in response. What do you think? He reflects his own question back to him, which gives the expert the opportunity to be the expert. I think it's this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Deuteronomy to Jesus in answer to that. 
And Jesus, well, you really, you live for the day as a Christian when you hear this. Jesus goes, correct. How would you like to get a right answer from Jesus? Right? You ask a spiritual question to Jesus and you give him the answer and he's like, that's right. Whoo, if Jesus says it's right, you know it's right. Right? But then the, then the scribe, the teacher, asks a follow-up question. He says, great. Who's my neighbor? Why would he ask that? If he says, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, why, why do you think he'd be interested in knowing who his neighbor is? He wants his list. He wants the particular prescriptive list on how to follow God. Because if I know who my neighbor is, I can love them. And if I know they're not my neighbor, I don't have to bother. I know if they fit the definition, then I will do everything I can to demonstrate God's love to them. But there's on the outside, I don't have to worry about it anymore. He's trying to narrow it down so he'll know when he can check the box. I've done it. I've been to temple. I've done my sacrifices. I've loved my neighbor. I'm a good Christian for the week. I've been to church. I've been to small group. I've tithed. I gave some, some money to a guy on the side of the road. I've been a good Christian for the week. See the, see the similarities there? He wants the script. He wants the checklist. He wants to know what it means. That partly, too, because the Jews considered the people you're supposed to love, the neighbor, to be the Jews. Everybody else, eh, God, is, God will take care of them. We're not worried about them. So there's some Jewish culture and history in these questions, too. He's wanting to know if Jesus is trying to test him, am I supposed to love somebody different? Am I supposed to love somebody who doesn't follow my definition of clean, pretty, and like me? That'll preach, right? Where's the limit? Where's the line? Where's the script that I follow? What must I do? Did you catch that? How do, not what do I, must I believe or think right, or what must I do? What's my checklist? What's my to-do list? And it's really funny. It's one of my favorite parts of Scripture because it's, all right, so who's my neighbor? Jesus doesn't go, everybody. He answers with a story. If you read 29 and 30, it's like, well, who is my neighbor? There was a man walking down to Jericho one day. Like, <laughs> it's a really weird, like, non sequitur moment in Scripture. He's like, I just asked you a question. You're telling me a story? So he says, there's a guy who's walking down. And in verse 31 and verse 32, a priest and a Levite come along. Notice the man on the side of the road move to the other side and go on without their way and don't help. The spiritual leaders in the temple move to the other side of the road and go on down the road and don't help. That's a theological or a theologically political statement about Jewish leadership. Except at the same time, technically, the priest and the Levite are following God's law. Technically. Because they don't know if the guy's dead. He's probably bleeding and they can probably see it. And if you know anything about Old Testament law, if you touch a dead body, if you touch blood or whatever, what can you not do? You can't go to church because you're considered unclean. So when the priest and Levite, they don't just pass him. They scoot to the other side of the road so they make sure they don't touch him. And become unclean and can't go to temple. The irony here is they're following the letter of God's law and not taking care of the beat up person. It's entirely possible to be so caught up in following the nuance of God's law that you ignore exactly what God wants you to do or miss 
what God wants you to do. Maybe not ignore, maybe not that harsh. Maybe they thought they were doing the right thing when they did not help. Well, they might waste my gift to them. They might not ever come to my church if I help them. So I'm not going to help them. You see how this translates forward? So they're following the rules. Now, this teaching is probably a parable or a teaching that rabbis used in Jesus' day, except Jesus puts a spin on it. He puts a twist on it. The sequel is not like the prequel, okay? So, like, usually they would say the priest and the Levite, and then the good, faithful Jewish layperson helps the guy on the side of the road. It would kind of be how the story goes. But Jesus changed the script because the next person coming along is a Samaritan. Now, if you know anything about that, a Samaritan were Jews mixed with other races. They were not pure Jewish people. They worshiped on a different mountain. They didn't go to Jerusalem. And the Jews considered them less than Jews. In other words, they were racist towards Samaritans. They considered them unworthy. They considered them less than. And Jesus makes this group of people that they hate the hero of the story. People listening to Jesus teach this story being like, wait, 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 back up. The Samaritan helped the person on the side of the road? That's not right. Samaritans aren't good. They're terrible. They don't even worship right. They're not the right kind of people. They're not part of, they're not my neighbor. And that's who Jesus has sacrificing his money, sacrificing his time, risking his life, putting his agenda on hold, not getting to point A and point B to where he was, the time frame he was going to. It says he spent the night, the first night. And then he tells the innkeeper, I'll come back and I'll pay off whatever it is because clearly this guy won't be able to pay. He's been robbed. I'll pay for everything. This Samaritan, this less than person, is outdoing the priest and the Levite in the story. By, not just by a little bit, not just by, oh, here's a Band-Aid and i got to get the temple. He is outdoing the priest and the Levite by a lot, right? Sacrificially. So, by the way, he has to notice that he's there. He has to stop and take some time, sacrifice to make sure that this person is taken care of. And he has to come back and do it all over again after he takes care of whatever the business is. And the story, that the, the translation that I read says he left the innkeeper two denarii. A, a commentary that I read says that's basically 30 night stay in a hotel. So he gave him two, he gave him an entire month stay in a hotel to recover and rest and paid the tab. And he says, if you run up anything else, I'll pay the tab when I get back. He probably used his own clothes for bandages. He put him on his own animal, scriptures tell us. All of that to make sure this guy is cared for. Then in verse 36, at the end of the story, Jesus asked the, asked the, the, the expert of the law, all right, who was the neighbor? Who was the nice person? Who was the hero of the story? Did you notice? The scribe says, the one who showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He doesn't say, oh, the Samaritan was. He goes, I guess the one who displayed mercy. He can't even name this other group because of how he feels about Samaritans. 
But he said, I guess I have to admit, priest and Levite weren't. It was the one who actually demonstrated mercy. But I'm not saying the word Samaritan. (laughs) Right? So he has to confess. The answer to the question is the story. Who is my neighbor? The person who needs our help. Now, this gets really complicated, right? If you were to stop and help everybody you come in contact with who, has, who needs something, when would you do your job? Ever. When would you go home to your family? Ever. Like, all the needs in the world, you can't possibly solve them all by yourself. Am I right? There's no way you could do your 9 to 5 if every time you go, oh, look, another tornado. Oh, look, another hurricane. I need to go there and do repair work. Not that you shouldn't. But if you personally jump on every opportunity when it comes along, when do you do anything else? Right? So there has to be a narrower list to a neighbor. It's not, it's not who is my neighbor. It, your, the answer to the question is, it is the opportunity God puts in front of you in that moment when you're able to help. Period. Regardless of whether they're worth it. Regardless of who they are. Regardless of whether they're like you, did God give you the opportunity to express love and support? Period. We don't get to qualify it. We don't get to go, well, they're my neighbor, they're not. Or they're worth it, or they're not. Is the opportunity in front of you? So are you even aware of the opportunity in front of you? You see, there's a practice to this. There's a rhythm to this. There's an artistry to this. Who am I uniquely wired to help the most? Who am I in the best position to help the most? What capability do I have to be a difference maker in the life of somebody? If you're good with bookkeeping, you can help somebody with their books. Because some of us need it. Some of us haven't balanced a checkbook in 12 years. We have no idea. (laughs) And if we did, we'd get it wrong. You know what I mean? If you can paint... And I can't come paint my house because I can't, right? If you can do something for somebody and God has uniquely given you the ability to do so, it starts to sound like a Spider-Man movie. With great power comes great responsibility. That's a spiritual truth in the Spider-Man movies, by the way. Too much is given, much is expected is the scripture. In the Marvel Universe, it's with great power comes great responsibility. I'm not talking about web-slinging. I'm talking about if you have the ability, you have... A responsibility. Now, you can't only do that because you have to take care of your life. But when God gives you an opportunity and you have the gifts to meet it, there's an expectation from God there that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And there is an artistry to that. Can I help right now? I can help later. Can I help in the morning? How do I do it? How can I help somebody get help for somebody that can help them better than I can? There's an artistry to it. It's not a science. And you cannot help every opportunity everywhere because you just don't have that capability. That'd be God territory, right? I mean, it's God who's restoring the world. It's God who's working among us. And by the way, in our life of worship, our rhythm of loving our neighbor, guess who's working in the midst of that? The Sunday school answer is, yeah, right? If you didn't say Jesus, you don't understand my joke. Any question anybody ever asks you in Sunday school, try Jesus and see if it doesn't fit the question. So 
if when I am expressing my gifts, whatever they are, especially to help my neighbor or to demonstrate God's love to my neighbor, guess who's in the middle of that interaction? Jesus. In fact, it says, when the, when the Samaritans saw the man, he felt pity. So your translation might say compassion. I know, I think I've taught this before, but I like saying the words. So I'm going to do it again. The Greek under there is this fun word. Splagnitsomai. It's kind of a fun word to say, so I just always bring it up when I see it in the scriptures. Splagnitsomai. You can say it with some gut, you know. And it means compassion. It means pity. It means deep, gut-wrenching angst over the situation. In other words, the Samaritan was moved emotionally to action, to sacrificial action. So not only do we have to practice the art of being aware and looking for the opportunities and they present themselves, compassion is where the motivation to help comes from. We all need a little uh, in our life. The reason I like that word so much is you'll notice this. You'll read the Gospels. This is what I shared before. Anytime Jesus is about to do a massive miracle, feeding 5,000 people, bringing Lazarus back from the dead, big miracles, the gospel usually says Jesus felt compassion for them and then he did whatever. Jesus felt splagnitsomai and then he fed 5,000 people because they were hungry and would have fighting on the way home from the, from the teaching. You see what I mean? So even when Jesus did restorative, compassionate, miraculous demonstrations of his love, he felt that compassion for them before he helped them. And so if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, then the practice, it bears to reason that we would feel that way for the person we're helping. That's what motivates us. It's not, look how many people I helped. It is deep, heartfelt angst for their suffering and their hardship. There's an artistry to that too, right? There's an asking Jesus to give you that. But then there's this other part, relinquishing control. We don't get to go, here's how I'll help and this is all I can do. Or I won't help because I can't do anything. Or, or I only help this group, but I won't help this group. Or I'll do this and I'll demonstrate my love in this setting, but not in this setting. We don't get to control how this works. God puts the opportunities in front of us when he does. Period. And we don't go, if I give this person money, they might use it for drugs. Yeah, they might. We don't get to evaluate the outcome. We do what God moves us with compassion to do and let God work out the details. Let God work out the outcome. Hopefully, it'll be used that way. And then the other part is, sometimes it has to be absolutely sacrificial. The Samaritan, I mentioned this earlier, the Samaritan just go, here's two denarii, see ya. Although that would be a lot of money in those days. He took time, he took energy, he put his life at risk, stopping on the side of the road to help the man in a place where he got robbed, which means he could have got robbed and did all that. Layer upon layer of cost for the Samaritan who's the hero. How does that work into a life of worship when I go to school at Mississippi State five days a week? You know, like, there are plenty of friends that are not going to make it through this semester unless you have the ability to help them. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Or if you're an accountant, it's tax day in like two days. Help somebody out. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
In other words, when God presents the opportunity and my heart's moved, it's time to move. And sometimes that is connecting somebody to somebody who can really help them because they have the right paintbrush, they have the right artistic gift, they have the right strength that will really meet that need even more than I do. Sometimes that's the most loving thing you can do. It's true. Now, at the very end of this story, he looks at the man, he looks at the man and says, who is, my, who, is, who is the neighbor to the person who was hurt? And he says, the one who showed mercy. And then the very end of the passage, he tells the scribe, go and do likewise. Now, here's the power of that. He just told a Jewish expert in the law, a Bible scholar of God's law, to do like the Samaritan. Go and worship and love other people like the guy you hate does. He just told the highest lawyer of the, the Old Testament to love God the way the guy who he think, doesn't think follow God, follows God does as a model. The scribe had to be a little angry. <laughs> I'm just, it's just a hunch. Wait, wait, wait. The scribe, excuse me, the Samaritan does a better job of loving neighbor than I do. That's a powerful statement in that story. What it means is you don't have to be a pastor to love. You don't have to know God perfectly to love. You don't have to be the best at it. You don't have to have all the resources in the world. You don't have to be the most life-changing person ever to follow God's command to love him the way he's called you to love him. Because the scribe and the priest and the Levite did it wrong, and the one that nobody thought knew how to follow God at all did it right. Which means any of us can. It also means all of us can practice a rhythm and a life of worship by loving our neighbor as ourself. Let's pray. God, this is a challenging one for us because we want to help, sometimes at arm's length, sometimes in a minimal way, sometimes not even at all because we just want to be in control. Lord, your spirit in us, fill us with compassion. Present us with opportunities and help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And help us to love you by loving our neighbor as ourself. In Christ's name, amen.